the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. LCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Download the Faith Talk Tampa app. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. David begins this section by telling us to depart from evil and do what's good. Now, although this is just a very brief statement, it only consists of, of a few words, it is loaded with a great deal of divine truth that is very pertinent to us, very applicable, very relevant. Depart from evil and do good. In other words, repent. It is impossible to turn from something without at the same time turning toward something else. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, and he's our teacher for these daily Bible studies. He mentioned that David is beginning a section, and we find that section at verse 27 of Psalm 37. David said, Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. Our study is from Psalm 37 and is titled, Fret Not Because of Evildoers. When someone plays a practical joke on us, what do we tend to do? Well, many times, after the shock wears off, we say, That was pretty cool. Now, who can I get to fall for this? Funny stuff when it's a gag, but not so funny when we fall prey to evil people and feel the temptation to be on the giving end instead of the receiving end for a change. David said, don't do that. Be patient. God will take care of you if you let him. He said that, first of all, because God inspired him to say it. But there was also the wisdom of experience at work. David had been around for a while and had seen a lot by this stage of his life. Now let's start our study. Here's Pastor Steve. In his book, The Joys of Successful Aging, Living Your Days to the Fullest, author George Sweeting writes about a reporter who interviewed a woman who was celebrating her 100th birthday. Here's how the interview went. How do you do it, the reporter asked. Well, she said, I never rocked any of our 12 children to sleep. I never got up with them at night. I never washed dishes or cleaned the house. My dear husband Henry did that. May he rest in peace. He died at 49. (laughs) Now, Henry may have worked very hard and died at a young age, but there is an old saying, hard work never killed anybody, and it's true. And one man who proved the validity of this statement that hard work didn't kill him was King David. David lived a long life. He lived a hard life. He worked very hard. It was a life filled with lots of labor, starting when he was a young boy. As you'll recall, the Bible says that he worked in the fields as a shepherd, taking care of his father's sheep. Then as a young man, he was a soldier, a warrior. He was also forced to be a fugitive on the run from King Saul. And then for the final 47 years of David's life, he ruled over the children of Israel as their king. 
In fact, he had ruled over Israel for so many years that when he penned Psalm 37, which is our study today, the psalm tells us that he was an old man. Notice what he says, what David writes in verse 25. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. Now, we don't know how old David was when he wrote Psalm 37. He just tells us that he he wrote it as an old man, as a senior citizen, as someone who had lived a, a long time and many years. And his purpose in telling us that he's writing this psalm, he's old, or once young, rather, and now that he's writing, he's old, his purpose is to testify that in all of these years of his life, and there had been many... He had never seen one single incident of God forsaking someone who was his child. He tells us that he has never seen the righteous forsaken by God or any of his children begging for food. In other words, he wants everyone to know that God is faithful to sustain his people. He promises to provide for them and he does provide for them. And now, as an old man looking back, David has seen this truth played out many, many times. Now, as you know, David wrote this psalm to help believers, the believers of his day, stop fretting over the prosperity of the wicked. We've been studying this for several weeks, and that's really the the issue at hand. Stop fretting over the prosperity of the wicked. He also has written them to help them overcome their sin of envying these prosperous, wicked people, as well as overcome their sin of worrying and being fearful about their their own safety because these prosperous evildoers were persecuting them to the point where their lives were in danger. All of that we've seen in the last few weeks. To accomplish his goal of helping them stop fretting, David does several things. First of all, he tells them to look ahead, and I'm just going to paraphrase this and bring us up to speed. He tells them to look ahead to what the future holds for these wicked people who are presently successful and see that their future is very bleak and it's, it's dismal because their success is fleeting, it's momentary, it's, it's brief, and then it's gone. That's it. Second, he tells them that they need not only to look ahead to see the future of the wicked, but also look up and focus on your own relationship with the Lord. And that's where in the first few verses he tells us that we need to trust in the Lord, to obey him, to delight in him, to commit ourselves to him, to rest in him. In other words, what he's saying, folks, is concentrate on your own personal walk with God and you won't be concerned about how much money someone else has. Third, David tells them that in spite of the current success that these wicked people have had in carrying out their evil plans, eventually God is going to intervene. He's going to intervene. He's going to put put an end to their evil. In fact, he laughs at them because of the absurdity of thinking that they can get away with it. And someday what they do will be done to them. Now, last session, we saw how David assures these believers that God does provide for them materially. And he'll continue to provide for them. He says that unlike the wicked who borrow and don't pay back because they have lost their money and don't have any money left to pay back, the godly, he says, are generous, generous 
because God has provided enough for them to take care of themselves and to share with others. Notice verse 21. David says, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, and that's because he doesn't have the money anymore. But the righteous is gracious, and he gives. He goes on to say that although a believer may go through some serious financial ups and downs in his life, God is faithful to sustain him, faithful to provide for him as he holds his hand, and he will bring him through this financial disaster. Notice verse 24. When he falls... And I suggested to you last week that this is not a moral fall, but a financial fall. That's the context. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. And then finally, we saw last session that David says that the Lord will continue to provide for a believer's needs because he will never let go. He will never forsake him. Tells us that in verse 25. I've been young. Now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Now, having mentioned that he is writing this psalm as an old man, which he tells us in verse 25, it appears that in the next section of this psalm, which we have come to this morning, David writes as a mature man, a seasoned veteran, a man who has known the Lord and walked with the Lord for many years, he's offering his wise and and inspired counsel, advice, to those who are younger than him. And his advice is about godly living. Godly living. Notice what he writes, starting in verse 27. Depart from, from evil and do good, so you'll abide forever. For the Lord loves justice And does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land. Dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Now, just a casual surface glance at these verses tells us that David is concerned that that these people, these believers in Israel in his day, who were so fretting and worried and angry and upset over the prosperity of the wicked, his concern is that they live righteously. They live godly lives. Notice he tells them, and you can just see this in the verses, he says, depart from evil and do good. He's instructing them on righteous living. He says that those who are righteous speak words of wisdom and justice. Once again, righteous living. He says that the law of God is in the heart of those who are righteous. Once again, godly living. All of these statements have to do with personal holiness. And the question that we have to ask is why? Why is David so concerned about the behavior of those he was writing to? Why does he make it a point to tell them about righteous living at this particular spot in the psalm? Listen closely. He commands them to live godly in order to help them overcome the temptation that they might have about living like the wicked live. Remember, one of the problems that these people had is they were envious of the wicked. If you look back at verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious towards wrongdoers. They were envious of the wicked. They wanted what they had. So it's not hard 
to imagine how in their envy they would be tempted to behave like the very people they were envious of, thinking that since righteous living up to this point hadn't brought them wealth, maybe a different lifestyle. Maybe a different lifestyle might help them become financially successful. If you can't beat them, join them. And that's what David wants them to avoid, and that's what he's writing about. He doesn't want them to abandon godliness in their pursuit of riches. And so writing as an old man who has seen a great deal during his lifetime, David tells them to turn from their sin and live righteously. He exhorts these struggling believers to keep themselves pure while being surrounded by unholy, impure people. And although David wrote these words to the believers of his generation, he really might as well have been writing to Christians today because human nature never changes. We face the same temptation to live like the unsaved as they did. You see, we are surrounded by a culture and a society of pagans, and there is a constant pull on our hearts to like them and be like them, act like them, live like them, have the same attitudes of the world. And that's why there are so many statements in the New Testament warning us not to succumb to the temptation to fall back into our old pre-conversion days. For example, Romans 12, verse 2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Why would the apostle say that unless that was a temptation? Do not be conformed into this world. Don't be molded into the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You only write that because it is a temptation. First Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now David is essentially saying the same thing here in these verses in Psalm 37. He is telling these struggling believers of his day that with all of their anger over the prosperity of the wicked and all of their envying them, they need to be careful that they don't start living like these evildoers. So David calls them, and by application, he calls us to a righteous way of life, a righteous lifestyle that is so distinct and so different from the unsaved in society. And one of the benefits of living like this is that in addition to glorifying God, which is always to be our first priority for anything we do, we also, in addition, we assure ourselves that we belong to the Lord and that we are genuine believers, that we have truly been converted to Christ and that Christ has really saved us. See, one of the ways that God grants us the assurance of our salvation is by giving us some tangible evidences that we have been transformed by his grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it isn't that we are basing our salvation on the way we live. God forbid we should ever do that. Our salvation is based solely on God's grace and mercy found in Jesus Christ, his atoning death on our behalf, and nothing we could ever do. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah said. But those who have indeed trusted Christ 
as their Lord and as their Savior will evidence their faith in Christ by the way they behave. That is to say that we distinguish ourselves from the unsaved by the way we live. We reflect our Lord. We reflect his righteousness in a very dark and pagan world. James in his little book at the end of the New Testament says that faith without works is dead. He means that faith without works is no faith. It's not saving faith. It's dead. It's not living faith that God grants. But those who have saving faith will demonstrate their faith by the way they live. And here in Psalm 37, David reveals some of those distinguishing marks of a true believer that not only encourage us to live holy lives, separate lives, and not give into the the temptation to live like the world, but they also assure us, as I said earlier, they assure us that we are genuine believers because only true believers will want to live this way and only true believers have the power to live this way. So, With that as our background, in this section before us, these few verses, David gives us two specific ways that a true believer is to live. Number one, he is to depart from evil and do good works. They really go together. Number two, he is to speak good words. So he he departs from evil, he does good works, and he speaks good words. The first way that David tells us to live is that we are to depart from evil and do good works. Notice verse 27. David writes, depart from evil and do good, and so you will abide forever. Now, David begins this section by telling us to depart from evil and do what's good. Now, although this is just a very brief statement, it only consists of of a few words, it is loaded with a great deal of divine truth that is very pertinent to us, very applicable, very relevant. For one thing, in calling us to depart from evil, David is telling us about one of the keys to living a godly life because he is telling us that holiness requires a lifestyle of, note this, repentance. Repentance. See, the biblical concept of repentance is that we turn from our sin. The word itself, repentance, as used in the New Testament, literally means a change of of mind. However, it is always used in the sense of a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. In other words, a forsaking of sin. It is never a change of mind for the sake of changing your mind and leaving it at that. Just having a different opinion. Never used like that. See, repentance is not a minor issue. It is really at the core of the message of salvation because coming to Christ for salvation from sin involves turning away from our sin, the sin of living independently of God in running our own lives. This is why John the Baptist came on the scene announcing that the Messiah was about to come. He called people to salvation by calling them to repentance. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Those exact words were the first words of our Lord in his own ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And when Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach the gospel around the world, he told them that the message that they were to tell others was a message of repentance. Normally, when we think of the Great Commission, we think only of Matthew's gospel or maybe Mark's gospel. But Luke's gospel tells us something else in addition to what the other gospel writers tell us. In Luke chapter 24... Verses 46 and 47, listen to this. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus said, our message is a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you'll recall in Acts, Acts chapter 26, the apostle is under arrest. He's in Caesarea. King Agrippa comes and says, I'd like to hear about this man. So the apostle appears before King Agrippa to defend his ministry. And he explains to him how the Lord appeared to him and the Lord commissioned him to call people, note this, to repentance. Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 26, starting at verse 19. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to this heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, what makes this fascinating is that in the previous verses, the apostle himself defines what he meant by repentance. We don't have to guess. He tells us. If you look at verses 15 through 18, just prior to this. Now, remember, he's using the word repentance. I told people they need to repent and turn to God. But now, starting at verse 15, notice this. And I said, this is as the Lord appeared to him. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's his ministry. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, I want you to just put this together because in Paul's thinking, in his mind, his message of repentance as he defines it was to call people to turn from the darkness of sin and Satan to the light of holiness and God. It is a turning away from sin. And we have a, an excellent illustration of this very thing happening in Paul's ministry in the lives of the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say this, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Paul says, I don't need to tell people about your faith. It's so obvious, it's so genuine, everybody knows about it. Verse 9 
For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Notice, involved in their salvation as they turned from their idolatry and turned away from that and they turned to the living and true God. Folks, that's repentance. In his systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff said, True repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also real repentance. The two are but different aspects of the same turning, a turning away from sin in the direction of God. The two cannot be separated. They are simply complementary parts of the same process. Psalm 37 not only gives us encouragement when we are mistreated by evildoers, it urges us toward a godly attitude towards our situation. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to know more about Lakeside, go to lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714. We have just a few more broadcasts left in this series from Psalm 37. Perhaps you missed one or two. You can fill in the blank spots by visiting our website, firstbyverseradio.org. Click the Message Archive tab and locate the dates you need. That's versebyverseradio.org. Let me give you one more website before we say farewell. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.